Well, as we go into God's Word today, we're continuing in our series in the book of Romans. We're in Romans chapter 6. On the last days of the Civil War, the Confederate capital, Richmond, Virginia, fell to the Union Army. Abraham Lincoln insisted on visiting the city. Even though no one knew he was coming, slaves recognized him immediately and thronged around him. He had liberated them by the Emancipation Proclamation, and now Lincoln's army had set them free. According to Admiral David, Admiral David Porter, an eyewitness, Lincoln spoke to the throng around him. My friends, you are free, free as air. You can cast off the name of slave and trample upon it. Liberty is your birthright. But Lincoln also warned them not to abuse their freedom. Let the world see that you value your freedom. Lincoln said, don't let your joy carry you into excess. Learn the laws and obey them. That is very much like the message Jesus gives to those whom he has liberated by his death and resurrection. Jesus gives us our true birthright, spiritual freedom. But that freedom isn't an excuse for disobedience, but rather it forms the basis for learning and obeying God's laws. Abraham Lincoln told those slaves they were free. They had been declared free by the Emancipation Proclamation. And now they've been set free by the Union Army. But now in this new life, in this new joy, in this new freedom, as an expression of how much they valued their new freedom, he challenged them to learn and obey the laws of the land. That's true for us. As true believers, we have been given new life in Christ. We've been set free from the consequences of our sin and from the consequence of death. And as an expression of how much we value this new life that we've been given, we in response learn to love, to obey our Christ. The process of living by faith is called sanctification. It's a big word. It basically means the process of becoming holy, the process of spiritual growth. One commentator said, sanctification is a process by which one's moral condition is brought into conformity with one's legal status before God. It's a continuation of what was begun in regeneration when a newness of life was conferred upon and instilled within the believer. In particular, sanctification is the Holy Spirit's applying to the life of the believer the work done by Jesus Christ. Another said, sanctification is the progressive work of God and man that makes us more and more free from sin and more and more like Christ in our actual lives. See, the Greek term for sanctify means to set apart. To be set apart for God's special use. To make distinct from that which is common. Hence, sanctification is to be set apart. To be distinct from all else. Set apart to God. Set apart from this world. It's important to point out here that the Bible teaches there are three different aspects to sanctification. There is a past, a present, and a future aspect the sanctification in every believer's life. It has also been described as inaugural or progressive 
and final or complete sanctification. The past or inaugural aspect of sanctification coincides with our moment of salvation. At the point of our regeneration, there's a definitive break from the ruling power of sin in our lives so that the believer is no longer ruled or dominated by sin, no longer loves to sin, but rather loves to pursue Christ, to become like Christ, more and more growing in our spiritual lives because the inauguration of sanctification in our lives. In inaugural sanctification, we are declared holy through our union with Christ and thus had a decisive break from the power of sin and instead are now under the power of God's grace. 1 Corinthians 1-2 says, To the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints, 1 Corinthians 6.11 says, And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Hebrews 10.10 says, We have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Every believer stands in the eyes of God, completely set apart, holy, sanctified, through Christ. Because of what Christ has done, we are declared in the Bible to be sanctified, to be holy, to be a saint. Well, the final or future aspect of sanctification is when you become fully and completely sanctified. The final or future aspect is when we are actually made perfectly holy upon our ushering into God's eternal kingdom upon our deaths. When our inaugurated holiness becomes our actual holiness. 1 John 3, 2 says, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him. Because we shall see him as he is. Philippians 3.21. Who will transform our lowly bodies to be like his glorious body. By the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. And of course Romans 8.29 and 30. For those whom he foreknow he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. In order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Someday, what we've been given through our union with Christ will be all that we have left. And what a great day that's going to be. Complete, final, holy, glorified, in perfect union with God. You can actually see all three aspects of our sanctification in Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews 10:10, 10, 10, our past sanctification, we have been sanctified. Hebrews 10:14, our future sanctification, we are perfected for all time. And in Hebrews 10:14, it talks about our present progressive sanctification, those who are being sanctified, cuz that's where we are now. 
Where we are now is in process, in the present, in this progressive aspect of becoming more like Christ. We are being sanctified. We are now lingering between what we are declared to be in Christ, sanctified, what we will finally be in Christ, completely sanctified. We're in that middle aspect of sanctification, the growth, the change, the maturity aspect, the becoming more holy, being set apart to God and being set apart from this world. We're now in this time where the Holy Spirit is applying daily in our lives the work that Jesus Christ has done. We're now in the time when we're yielding our lives to God. And he helps us to experience in our real lives freedom from the power of sin that has been crushed by Christ. And he makes us more and more like Christ in our actual lives. Jerry Bridges in his classic book, The Pursuit of Holiness, that I refer to quite regularly because it was so meaningful and impactful in my life, details some of the best material on progressive sanctification, what it means and how to pursue it. He says, a farmer plows his field and sows the seed, fertilizes and cultivates, all the while knowing that in the final analysis, he is utterly dependent on forces outside of himself. He knows he cannot cause the seed to germinate, nor can he produce the rain and sunshine for growing and harvesting the crop. For a successful harvest, he is dependent on these things from God. Yet the farmer knows that unless he diligently pursues his responsibilities to plow and to plant and to fertilize and to cultivate, he can't expect a harvest at the end of the season. In a sense, he's in a partnership with God. And he will reap its benefits only when he has fulfilled his own responsibilities. Farming is a joint adventure between God and the farmer. The farmer cannot do what God must do. And God will not do what the farmer should do. We can say just as accurately that the pursuit of holiness, progressive sanctification, spiritual growth in our lives is a joint venture between God and the Christian. No one can attain any degree of holiness without God working in his life first and completely and overwhelmingly. But just as surely, no one will attain it without effort on his own part. God has made it possible for us to walk in holiness. But he has given us the responsibility to do the walking. He does not do that for us. We Christians greatly enjoy talking about the provision of God, how Christ defeated sin on the cross and gave the Holy Spirit to empower us to, to victory over sin. But we do not as readily talk about our own responsibility to walk in holiness. Two primary reasons can be given for this, he said. First, we are simply reluctant to face our own responsibility. We prefer to leave it to God, to let go and let God. We, we pray for victory when we know what we really should be doing is acting in obedience. The second reason is that we don't understand this proper distinction between God's provision and our own responsibility for holiness. I think Jerry Bridges nails it. Spiritual growth, living by faith, the sanctification process is this partnership. 
It's the way God has designed it to be. He does only what he can do. And it's amazing and it's complete and it's powerful. But he wants us to do what he wants us to do. Spiritual growth doesn't happen by accident. But by discipline. That's why followers of Christ are called disciples. And he also nailed it while we struggle so much with pursuing holiness. First, we don't want to. And second, we don't know how to. Later in his book, he says, if holiness is so basic to the Christian's life, why do we not experience it more in our daily lives? That's a great question. So why do so many Christians feel constantly defeated in their struggle with sin? Why does the church so often seem more conformed to the world around it than to God? Bridges says the answer to those questions can be grouped into three basic problem areas. Our first is that our attitude towards sin is more self-centered than God-centered. Have you ever thought about having God-centered sin? See, so often when we sin, we're so concerned just about ourselves, right? We're so focused, focused on what did it do to us? What's the consequences I'm going to face because of my sin? What problems have I caused because of my sins? Even in confessing our sin, it's all about us just thinking about ourselves. But if we can see our sin in a more God-centered way, we see it like the prodigal son, right? Where he said, Father... I have sinned against heaven and before you. Or we see it like David said, against you, God, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. God-centered sin is when we're grieved, not just because of our failure and the, the problem and the consequences that it caused, but we are grieved because we've broken the very heart of God. We've offended the very one who has died for our salvation. We've fallen short of the amazing provision that he has given to us, breaking the power of sin. We need to first see sin in relation to God, that, that we have broken his heart, we've offended his holiness. The second problem, he says, is that we've misunderstood living by faith to mean that no effort at holiness is required on our part. They kind of stop Galatians, you know, 2.20 right in the middle of the verse. I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. But the verse doesn't end there. It keeps going and it says, and the life I now live in the flesh... I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. We need to be saying to ourselves, I take personal responsibility for my actions. And I am now going to live by faith. I'm going to do something about it. I'm going to pursue spiritual growth. The third problem, he says, is that we don't take sin seriously. We tend to categorize sin. There are sins that are totally unacceptable, right? And yet we tolerate other sins. Sometimes even just totally overlooking other sins. It's funny how we kind of, you know, tend to find other people's sins very unacceptable. But we think that they should be much more tolerable 
of our sins or just overlook our sins. The scripture says in Song of Solomon in 2.15, the little foxes spoil the vineyard. It's the compromise on the little issues that lead to the greater compromise on the greater downfalls. We might say to ourselves, I mean, God really doesn't care about these little things, right? He's just focused on the big things. If I follow God in the big things, that's what he wants me to do. Then I can do whatever I want to on these little things. It's amazing how we categorize sin and start to justify our actions. Adam and Eve could have thought this way, right? It's just a piece of fruit, right? I mean, surely God doesn't mind. I mean, God doesn't care. It's just, it's a small thing. It's a bite of a piece of fruit. I just want to taste it. It looks really good. I mean, I'm obeying God in all of these other areas. Look at all these ways I'm obeying God. And all the important areas. This is just a, a small thing. The question is, is the Lord to be obeyed in all things whatsoever he commanded? Is God our holy lawgiver? Are we as his creatures bound to give assent of our will to his will? Are we willing to call sin, sin, not because it's big or not because it's little, but because it's in God's law and he forbids it. And because it's an affront to God's holiness, it's an offense to God's love. We can't categorize sin if we're going to live a life of holiness. If we're going to live by faith, if we're going to progress in our sanctification and our spiritual growth, we have to take sin seriously. We have to see it as an affront to God's holiness and love. We have to see it as an insult to the cross of Christ, our Savior. Do we justify our actions? Do we make light of our sin, excusing it as no big deal? Do we shirk our responsibility? Do we blame others? For our actions, if we have any hope of growing in holiness, any hope of becoming more like Christ, any hope of progressing in our spiritual growth and sanctification, any hope of living our life by faith, then one of the first steps we have to do is to become brutally honest about our responsibility to pursue holiness and about the reality of sin in our lives. Well, how about you? Are you brutally honest with yourself about your sin? We will never progress in our spiritual life if we don't take sin seriously. That's exactly what Romans 6 has been telling us. That's exactly what we looked at last week. Romans 6 gives us four steps down the Romans road of sanctification. Romans 6 details for us the process of change, the process of progressive sanctification, the process of spiritual growth, to know, reckon, yield, obey. Know is in verses 1 through 10. Reckon is in verse 11. Yield is in verses 12 through 14. And obey is in verses 15 through 23. We'll open your Bibles with me there to Romans 6 if you're not there. And follow along as I read verses 1 through 10. Romans chapter 6, verses 1 through 10. The Holy Scripture says, What shall we say then? Or do we continue in sin that grace may abound? 
By no means. How can we who died to sin live in it? Do you not know that all of us have been baptized into Christ Jesus? We're baptized into his death. We were buried with him, therefore, by baptism into death. And know that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we've been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, rendered powerless, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe we'll also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin. Once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. The first step down the Romans road And the process of sanctification is to know. There are three things we are to know in verses 3 and verses 6 and verses 9. They're all facts for a Christian. We detailed a sermon all about this last week. What we are to know. Here's to remember a summary. The first fact we are to know is that we are dead to sin. Because we are united with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. When Jesus died... We died. When Jesus was raised from the dead, we were raised from the dead to walk with him in newness of life. We are so connected to what he accomplished on the cross. It's as if it happened to us. The second fact we are to know is that we are dead to sin because our old self was crucified with Christ. Our old self was crucified with Christ in order that the body of sin might be rendered powerless powerless as sin. We have more power over sin than sin has over us because the death of our Savior has crucified our old self and has set us free from sin. And then in verse 9 it says that we know that we are dead to sin because Jesus died to sin and lives to God. He died to the penalty of sin, taking upon himself the sins of the whole world, taking God's wrath, Paying sin's price. He paid the penalty for sin. And he died to the power of sin. Jesus forever broke the power of sin. For all of us who belong to God through faith. The fact is. The fact is. That Jesus has broken the power of sin in our lives. It's a fact. He has set us free from the enslavement of our sins. Jesus' death and resurrection weren't just what he did for me, but what he did to me. These are facts. This is the truth for every follower of Christ, for you and for me. The next step is to consider, to count, to reckon. After saying all these things that we are to know, these these facts that are true for every believer... Paul says in verse 11, So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. What Paul is saying is that we're supposed to take all of that he just said in those previous versions, all of this truth about the powerful union we have with Christ, all that Christ has given to us, 
and reckon it as true in our hearts and our lives. We're supposed to believe that what God has said about us is really true in our lives. We're supposed to consider ourselves. We're supposed to deem as true. We're supposed to count as true for us. We're supposed to reckon ourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. It doesn't matter an inch in our practical lives. All that Christ has done for us, if we don't take the truth, the facts, and count it, reckon it as true into our lives. Sitting on the top of the hill on a roller coaster is not the same thing as riding the roller coaster. Saying you believe in Jesus and all that he's done for you is not the same thing. As applying that truth into your life, living out that you are dead to sin and alive to God. We must take the facts of our powerful union with Christ from potential energy to kinetic energy. From facts to living faith. From truth to living principles. From what we know to how we live. We must consider Reckon, you must take it deep into your heart. You are dead to sin. You are alive to God in Christ Jesus. When our sinful hearts, when the lust of the flesh, when the lust of the eyes, when the pride of life, when our desires are, are more walking in step with the world than walking in step with God's word, we must take the facts that we know about how Jesus has broken the power of sin, and we must reckon them as true for us. We are dead to sin. We are alive to God. So take a moment this morning. Take a moment this morning and visualize, think about a sin in your life that so easily trips you up, a sin in your life that so easily entangles you. Guess what? You are dead to that. It no longer has mastery over you. That sin has been crucified with Christ and you have been set free from it. When that sin roars its ugly head and it tries to pull you down, when selfishness cries out from your heart, look at it squarely and say, I am dead to that. I'm dead to the anger in my life. I'm dead to the bitterness in my life. I'm dead to arrogance. I'm dead to lust. I am dead to gossip. I am dead to lies. I am dead to anxiety. I am dead to sin. Sin no longer has mastery over me. Is that awesome or what? We are dead to sin. Through our union with Christ, through all that Christ has done. And, what's the verse say? We're alive to God in Christ Jesus. Are you alive today? Are you alive to the rule of God in your life? Are you alive to his love, to his grace, to his forgiveness, to his second chances, to his strength, to his will? Are you alive as never before? Because of God, because of what our union in Christ has given to us. Are you alive today? We're to reckon as true 
That we are dead to sin. We are to reckon as true that we're alive, vibrantly, passionately, purposefully alive to God in Christ Jesus. The next step in our journey down the road of sanctification takes us to present, to offer, to yield in verses 12 through 14. Romans 6, 12 through 14 says, Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourself to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you're not under law, but under grace. The fact is that we're united with Christ and the power of sin has been broken. We are then to consider, to reckon those facts to be true in our lives. And then now we're to not let sin reign in our bodies that we obey its wants and desires. Well, how do we do that? It says we are to present ourselves to God rather than presenting ourselves to sin. We're not to yield or to offer our bodies, our thoughts, our attitudes to sin, but rather we are to yield, to offer our bodies, our thoughts, our attitudes to God. How do we present yourself to God rather than to sin? We are to yield. To yield is to offer someone the right of way. When you come to a yield sign, that's what we're supposed to do. We're supposed to be prepared to stop and let the other person go first. They have the priority. They have the right of way. They go first. So when it comes to my thoughts and my attitudes and my body, I am to yield them to God. Present them as an offering to God. To yield to Him. God has the priority. God has the right of way in my life. What He wants comes first. How do you grow in your Christian walk? How do you progress in your sanctification? How do you live by faith? You yield your life to Christ. We take that powerful union with Christ. We reckon it to be true. Then we apply it to our lives by yielding our thoughts, our actions to what God wants and to not what sin wants. We yield to God the right of way of our lives. Are you yielding yourself to God? Are you giving him the right of way in your life? Does his will call the shots in your life? Is what he wants the first thing that you want in your life? If we're to grow in our spiritual lives, we need to put our union with Christ into practice and willingly yield our lives and our thoughts and our attitudes and our bodies to God. That brings us to our final step in the Romans road of sanctification, and that's to obey. That's verses 15 through 23. Romans 6, 15 to 23. What then? Are we to sin because we're not under the law, but under grace? By no means. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey? either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. And having been set free from sin, 
have become slaves of righteousness. I'm speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things you are now ashamed of? For the end of those things is death. But now that you've been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. Wow, what powerful words, right? What important words. Because, you know, we all like to think that we're autonomous, right? We all like to think we're the rulers of our own lives. We like to think that we're free to live however we want, to choose whatever we want. But what did this scripture tell us? The scripture tells us the reality is that we're all followers, that we're all slaves. As Paul said, humanly speaking, to whomever we obey, we are enslaved. Since we all obey, we're all enslaved. The question isn't, are you free or are you enslaved? It's to whom are you obeying? To whom are you enslaved? We are either slaves of sin, which leads to death, or we're slaves of righteousness, which leads to life. You can't be neither, and you can't be both. All of humanity falls into one side or the other. Though we were once slaves of sin, the scripture says, we become obedient from our hearts to God, having been set free from sin and become slaves of righteousness. The Apostle Paul often called himself a slave, a slave of Christ Jesus. And we have willingly done the same. He became obedient from his heart and willingly bound his life to Christ's. And we, who have been set free from sin through all that Jesus has done, we have willingly, by the obedience of our hearts, become slaves to God. Verses 20 and 21 present an amazing contrast. Either one is a slave of sin, free of righteousness, the fruit is shame, and the end is death, or one is a slave of God, free from sin, the fruit is sanctification, and the end is eternal life. See, one master kills you, and the other master saves you. One master you obey, and it leads to your shame. The other master you obey, and it leads to wholeness, through holiness. You're going to have to serve somebody. Someone once famously said, Is it a master that binds you to sin and death? Or is it a master who out of love sent his one and only son for you to die in your place to take the just penalty of our sin so that we could be united with him so that he could bring us the free gift of eternal life of salvation for the wages of sin. What you earn by being enslaved to sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life. 
in Christ Jesus. By accepting and believing in all that Christ did for us, he gives us the free gift of eternal life. We, therefore, in response as Christians, willingly and wantingly bind our hearts. We bind our wills. We bind our lives in obedience to Jesus Christ, willingly from our heart. So who are you obeying? Sin and selfishness or God and his word? <coughs> One wrote, there then are two lives which are totally opposed to each other. Jesus portrayed them as a broad road which leads to destruction and a narrow road which leads to life. Paul calls them two slaveries. By birth, we are in Adam, the slaves of sin. By grace and faith, we are in Christ, the slaves of God. Bondage to sin yields no return except shame and ongoing moral deterioration culminating in the death we deserve. Bondage to God, however, yields the precious fruit of progressive holiness culminating in the free gift of life. First, we know the facts. Then we reckon those facts as true in our lives. Then we yield the right of way, presenting ourselves to God, his will, our will. Then we obey from the heart, willingly and wantingly. We follow our Lord, our Savior, our Master. The Romans wrote of sanctification. What part of your road needs some maintenance? Where are the potholes in your Romans road to sanctification? What part do you need to focus on to, to strive to become more conformed to the image of Christ? May we all say, may we all exclaim from our hearts as Paul did there in that amazing verse in Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I live, but Christ who lives in me and the life I now live. I live in the flesh. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. May it be. Let's pray together. Father, this passage of Romans 6 is powerful. There's so much truth. There's so much to, to challenge our lives, to, to change our thinking, to spur us on. In our walk, challenge us with the facts. Challenge us to reckon. Challenge us to yield the right of way of our lives to you, our God. Challenge us to obey from willing and wanting hearts. Why? Because that's what Christians do. That's what we do because we've been united with Christ. It's all about Jesus. It's all about what he did on the cross and his burial and his resurrection. It's all for him and because of him. It is our joyous response to live a life in worship and love and obedience to our Savior, Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen.